Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm Emily. And I'm Jessica. And we're the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. I just are United Methodist clergy women from upstate New York. And we're finding a different way to do spirituality. So we are now recording. So we are live. Welcome to the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. And we have our very third guest now with us, the Reverend Harold Wheat. Yay! Yay. <laughs> Thank you so much. I feel really very honored to be here. Yes, it's an honor to have you here, truly. Yeah. So Harold, uh, one of the first questions that we've asked everybody is tell us as much as you want to share about your spiritual journey, because those, all of our spiritual journeys are wonderful. And I know that yours is full of highs and lows and valleys and cactuses and oceans and everything in between. I was trying to think about how to put it in a nutshell, because I've been on a spiritual journey for, well, I think my whole life. Mm -hmm. And, um, what I, I was loving the, the 23rd Psalm and Psalm number four, because they give an architecture for it. So 23rd Psalm, you come in and it's the psalmist talking about how you're learning to trust that God is providing green pastures, still waters. And before long, there is one heck of a valley of the shadow of death and mm. everything gets disrupted. And the language of the psalm shifts to the second person. You are with me. And I think that increasing intimacy of trust over time is a huge part of what's happened in my faith journey that God has been faithful even in the and maybe especially in the midst of this disruptive um, moments and some of the images that then proceed from that you set a table before me in the presence of my enemies what is it like to relax and to be calm and to know that God's got the table and there is abundance um, in the presence of enemies? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the concluding lines, um, my cup runneth over. Um, but and, and not to forget, you anoint me, right? God has given each one of us a task and to feel that anointing begin to take shape. And well, what is the 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 purpose to which I have been called. It's all in that one Psalm. And it, it tells a lot about, I think the faith journey um, and the way the cup does run over. Yeah. Since you mentioned Psalm four, I had to Google that quickly. So I adore all of the Psalms. Um, a few of my favorite things that I pick up with throughout that book, is psalms that have the strongest amount of musical direction in them as a musician that just really speaks to me because I, I want to connect it right back to David when he wrote it and we know that David was very strongly and intimately musical um, so he starts off with for the director of music with stringed instruments which I play um, and then he has his note Selah showing up in here several times over, which we think is some kind of a musical note that we don't have all the details for anymore that has no longer extant, but something, it, it, something like, all right, drop that beat. Now's the time for the hook, you know, and, you know, it, biblical club language. 
I love it. Mm. Yes, Jess, I honor your hand now and always. Okay, I just, uh, I, I figure if I raise my hand, it'll be easier for us to, to coordinate. Um, yes, of course. I, I've actually reflected on Psalm 23, the same thing recently. Like, you prepare a table before me in the place of my enemies. And like, it, I was just thinking, do I really have very many enemies? <laughs> Probably not. But at the same time, it's kind of like, you know, God is saying, look, I'm going to take care of you and it's going to be all right. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Um, I have to like remind myself of that. But yes, so I'm responding to that and saying, yes, I feel it. I feel it. Yay. Yeah. And, I, you know, it, we can bulk at the language of enemies because it feels it feels a little too honest. It feels a little too naked. Like, oh, I don't, I don't have enemies because you have to be like a bad person to have enemies. Not really. Well, you have to have lived. Most of the Psalms are David saying to God, please help me. I've pissed off a bunch of people and they're trying to kill me again. So yeah. Mm -hmm. And bad. I mean, if, if you've lived, then you have received somebody's antagonism at some point. True. If not, then you haven't lived a very interesting or long life. Not yet. Well, and I feel like recognizing that Jesus was killed by enemies kind of releases yeah. us from this association that like, if I have enemies, that must mean I'm a bad person or a mean person or whatever. I mean, I Jesus mm -hmm. was Point. a perfect person, the only perfect person, and also had enemies to the point of mm -hmm. causing his death. Mm -hmm. Excellent point. Mm -hmm. And never tried to placate those enemies because if he had made an attempt to do so, it might have saved him. Right. Mm. And not us. <laughs> yeah. Right. You're here. Mm -hmm. So Harold, I'd love to hear more about your personal spiritual practices because I know you to be particularly rich in that department. So I have developed over the past five or six years, a bifurcated sleep schedule. Mm. I read about this and then I just realized I always get up in the middle of the night and I always um, beat myself up for not being able to sleep and get all anxious about it. So I stopped getting anxious about it. I leaned into it and I started praying in the middle of the night and mm. I pray through the Psalms. Um, uh, most of the time with uh, the lights off and just quiet in the dark and I don't, I don't try to do much during that time but I find that that has grounded me so deeply and the Psalms uh, have given me insight into the prayer journey that I never would have um, experienced before. I also have been practicing the martial art of Aikido for 20 two years now close to 22 and integrating the knowledge of my body um, and the, the way my body handles energy in conflict into what I do on a daily basis and pastoring has been a delight and highly useful because to be able to move about in the energy circulating around conflict without getting um uh without losing my calm and my center is mm -hmm. well an ideal that i don't always get to but <laughs> it's really fun to actually aim for it and to have a practice that does that all the time 
I think it was Brene Brown says, calm is a superpower. And I believe it. Is there a question? Yeah, I actually had a couple questions. So are you doing the medieval first sleep, second sleep thing? Um, That's actually historically how humans slept. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. That's what I read. Yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. Before the Industrial Revolution. Yes, very cool. And Aikido, is that the one with um, the wooden swords? Well, Jesus said a thing to me. He's like, you can practice Aikido, but you can't use the sword. So I do really? open-handed techniques in Aikido, but Jesus set Very some cool. limits in my martial arts practice. So I, I actually don't study the sword. Mm. Interesting. But it, cool. Aikido is very sword-based art. So <laughs> my, poor, my poor sensei, he's like, oh, just go sit down. <laughs> <laughs> I asked friends in college that did it with the sword. So that's all I asked. <laughs> it's beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, totally, totally. Well, you know what? Jesus said to beat your swords into plowshares, so maybe you need to show up with like farm equipment instead. I'll rely on my brother for that. I have a brother who runs a, a farm. Nice, nice. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm. Uh, so uh, every one of these interviews, I have sat and I've just written down every time. You, every, every time somebody says a word that just jumps out at me is just unique, that or that just sticks in my head in some way. I start writing them down. So this is what your sheet looks like so far, <laughs> <laughs> and it has it has the word swords, medieval, insight, and bifurcated on it. <laughs> that's amazing yoga is also really important to my spiritual practice and i i do yoga every mm-hmm. morning and i last week i started doing yoga in the evenings and that's mm-hmm. been a real help as well yeah oh when jess was saying that um medieval people uh would would sleep for four hours and then wake up for a big stretch in the middle of the night and then try to get four more hours of sleep um that's also just what moms do so yeah, accurate just yeah, especially that. especially with a baby and especially if you're still breastfeeding at night so um yeah, yeah welcome to maternity Harold <laughs> <laughs> thank you over <laughs> 4 55 this morning yep <laughs> mm-hmm. yep yep and yeah it doesn't end when when the kids stop being babies because like like that's that's exactly my sleep schedule just is that like Daniel wants to go to sleep right now at like six and then wake up at four in the morning so that's it's a long night of sleep for him that's 10 hours but it doesn't neatly line up with my work day so it ends up meaning that I sleep in like two chunks instead of it you know instead of through the night so that's just what you got to do yep you just Mm -hmm. manage in a way though I feel like it's kind of I mean kids will sleep what's what their bodies naturally want for the most part as opposed to what schedules and and calendars and agendas permit or persuade and and, you know I was thinking about that Harold when you were talking about your sleep schedule my four-year-old last night um, was awake from 3 30 to 5 went back to sleep at five and slept mm-hmm. until eight o'clock this morning when I had to kind of shake him awake to get to preschool on time. Um, mm-hmm. It just seems like it's a default setting to sleep in that bifurcated schedule. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and frequently in medieval times, the 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 historical era, not the restaurant, um, people would wake up like that and then have a meal. And uh, my three year old Alexander does that a lot. He'll wake me up for for juice and noodles in the middle of the night, and then go back to sleep. So, yeah, I know everything he does is adorable, and it's it's a it's a self preservation thing. He needs to be cute so that I don't eat him. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think the little ones would have to be very cute for me to get up in the middle of the night with them. <laughs> it's an obligation thing. You find out quickly when you bring them home from the hospital that no one's gonna do it for you. And the Girl, hospital has a no return policy. Yeah. <laughs> Harold, how did uh, you said that Jesus says you're not allowed to use the sword? How did you explore that that understanding? When I was about sixteen, I felt a pretty strong calling to nonviolence, and I began to make, um, you know, to give notice to the. Um, selective service that I would not serve in armed conflict and um, and to practice nonviolence on an interpersonal level as well. And that commitment, the vow of nonviolence that I took as a teenager has informed my spirituality for my whole life. And when I I prayed about it and I I, you know, I said, Jesus, you know, here I am. I <laughs> I'm pretty sure I got a call to study this martial art. And it's been so fun and um and i really felt a pretty strong leading to keep uh to keep centered on that put away your sword um command and mm. and to study what happens within my body but not to try and extend my body through weapons um mm. just just to handle the energy within my body well that is totally. so fascinating today, especially with our gun-obsessed culture. Mm -hmm. Very much. And, and like aggression-obsessed beyond that. Like we have channeled that into guns, but the, the, the justification for why we must have the guns is that, well, either I have something that I'm going to need the gun for at some point, I have a right to bear arms, darn it, or somebody is going to come at me and then I'm going to need it to defend myself, you know, and we, and we, we start teaching that from a super early age. Like we haven't in, in our house, we don't let the kids play with toy guns. Cause it's just, we feel like it's just too much of a slippery slope that, it, you know, if you're, te if you're teaching this gun play really early, then I mean, eh, it's uncomfortable. Especially ironic, considering that the uh, shooter at the Club Q nightclub was disarmed by unarmed people, mm -hmm. including a drag queen wearing high heels. That was her weapon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. So, Harold, do you teach that? Do you teach the nonviolence as part of your ministry? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that, for me, I can't understand the, the gospel of Jesus Christ without um, positing a nonviolent God at the heart of it. Mm -hmm. So how, yeah. do you, how do you get that message out and institute a different positive message 
instead? Well, I, I think a lot of what Jesus was trying to do was to redefine power mm. and to anchor power um, within one's relationship with God and one's capacity for suffering and one's mm. capacity for gratitude. So, I mean, obviously, violence stems out of a kind of power in which you seek to move the other person and not be moved yourself. And Jesus posited a kind of power in which you seek to be moved yourself so that in connection with the other person, you can both be moved together. Mm. And so, you know, I've just been um, reflecting this fall on how gratitude is the, gratitude is the low hanging fruit. And mm -hmm. if I can be truly and deeply grateful for the people around me and allow their humanity and their gifts to move me really deeply and to take what happens in me as I am moved by them into prayer, that's a, that's a really cool way to um, express a beautiful form of power in community that it makes things flow better. If I've got somebody that I'm in conflict with and I start giving thanks for them, <laughs> the conflict transforms every time. Um, mm. just even, they don't even need to know that I'm giving thanks for them. Although at some points it can help. Um, but it, it is a transformative practice of nonviolence. And then, and then the other end of the spectrum is the, the practice of suffering and, and Jesus, you know, taking on the oppressive, um, and deliberate cruelty of the domination system and allowing that to move him so deeply that he bled to death. Um, or was asphyxiated by his own mm -hmm. um, skeletal structure on a cross and like I'm I'm not at that level of spiritual attainment where I can suffer that way but yeah. I can see <laughs> that that capacity for endurance is a form of training that is offered to disciples as mm -hmm. we as we take on deeper levels of leadership. And because that allows us to shepherd violent behavior out of the relational system without engaging in it ourselves. Yeah. And to allow others to take responsibility for the violence and stop doing it. Because ultimately we wanna win against violence, not against the people on the other side of whatever yeah. conflict we happen to, to be part of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And for for context, for listeners who don't know the four of us as well, um, Harold is a, a pastor along with the other three of us here in Upper New York, and he serves at Tabernacle UMC in Binghamton. And um, oh, yes, that's right. You took on a second church. I yes. certainly did. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And, it, and it, you know, talk about calling to endurance <laughs> but um yeah in a um a shared war story that harold and i have and i will leave details nebulous but in a shared war story that we have one of the things that harold said to me during my time of trial that i carried with me deeply was that we don't know how to suffer as people of faith. We don't have good teaching on that. We don't have good mentorship on it. So we don't know how to do that and get through it. Mm 
So it's not it's not just about um, it's not just about a commitment to nonviolence or what it'll change within yourself. It's also just plain about coping. If you if you know how to hurt, then you know how to still function while you're hurt. You could be a wounded healer. I do have a question about that, though. Like, at what point, you know, we we need to learn how to, you know, suffer with kind of grace and endurance. But at the same time, it, on what level are we just allowing institutions to abuse us? And how do we set good boundaries for that? Mm -hmm make sure it doesn't happen. Yeah. So I think uh, there has to be a, a huge piece of accountability. Mm -hmm. And and that's 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 embedded within the relationship that Jesus taught us to have and it's very very deeply in the commitment that Wesley called us to in this movement is accountability to one another. Um, I actually got to talk about this the other day when uh, when we had our interview with Jeremiah, um, because he's a so he's he's a friend of mine serving out here in Schenectady, and a pagan priest who also happens to identify as gay, and the and the uh, the morning that we did his interview was the day after the Club Q shooting, and he had just found out about it. So, and then hit the record button on Zoom. So it, it, his feeling was just very like, and he was very justifiably angry. So he was, and, and it was the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And so we were headed into um, a, an interfaith Thanksgiving service that afternoon. And everything that we had planned for that service was centered around harmony and love and peace and it was making him ask very deep and pointed questions about well what good is that if people are dying like how do, how do we balance that like are, is there something that we need to do right now besides holding hands and being friends and i think the thing that's missing is that we're not friends mm. that that that's why that feels so hollow that's, if you're going to well, hold hands, you got to mean it first. So like, that's something that's really been a, a issue for me. When I was 14 years old, Columbine happened in my school district, 12 miles from my house. Mm. And understanding that those boys were on some level radicalized, they're kind of early alt-right radicalized by the internet kids. And I mm. knew a lot of kids that were receiving the same kind of rhetoric from internet, but also from their peers, from their parents. It was like uh, the suburbs of Denver at that time were a very kind of white conservative, but even like violent white supremacist area. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every time a shooting happens in, in Colorado, I'm like, could my community stop suffering from this? Because I still very mm -hmm. much identify with Colorado as a home. And then, you know, it happened in Buffalo, which is near where I live, and it affected patients where I work. And I'm just, you know, how these kids get radicalized now. How do we de-escalate the rhetoric and de-radicalize people? And it sounds like, Harold, that's like kind of the direction you're in, and I'm glad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
<laughs> Nonviolence is tricky on a number of levels. And I it's kind of like fasting. I I don't want to I do fasting from food um, as part of my spiritual practices, but I don't recommend it very often because so many people are coming to fasting from um, a position of having body image issues or mm-hmm. a position of having various medications that have to stay in balance and fasting throws off every single balance within your body. And then, and then you and then you go through this process of your body resetting them. But if you're on various medications, you can't take that kind of stress. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you know, and if you have, um, you know, a tendency towards thoughts around body issues, fasting can play into that in a really mm-hmm. unhealthy way. And likewise, nonviolence, um, nonviolence is tricky because, you know, as a white male, it's a very different thing for me to practice nonviolence because I'm coming from such a privileged um, position in society. Um, whereas um, women have been um, encouraged to practice a kind of nonviolence that is um, disempowering, and it um, yes. it you know it, it is more or less a, a forced acceptance of unacceptable situations in which. Um, violence and domination is happening even in domestic and in intimate settings mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and that is not at all what um what i'm about or what jesus was about and i just think that that saying that out loud is important in the in the midst of um you know talking a little bit about how you know my perception is that nonviolence is is, is also part of what jesus was doing i wonder yeah that nonviolence is not the same thing as submission, mm, at least not, in, not at least not in the sense of total doormat submission. <laughs> and I've I've found it um, very important that um, basically like clockwork every three years because we follow the lectionary, the turn the other cheek uh, passage is going to come up in the revised common lectionary. And every time I've preached it and I make sure that if that's in the lectionary, that's what the sermon's on, on Sunday. Every time I've preached that one, I have received shock from at least a couple people in the congregation because they had only ever heard that phrase, turn the other cheek used as some kind of if somebody is bullying you if somebody is beating you up just let them and and that that's the message and they have heard that um brought out to the nth degree and used to mean if you are in an abusive relationship stay because jesus said turn the other cheek if you are a survivor of violence let them don't try to bring justice into your life don't try to bring power back into your life because jesus said turn the other cheek and it doesn't mean that and i have i've i have walked congregations through and little and uh, emily has seen me do this on my husband so i have walked congregations Mm -hmm. through what it actually looks like if somebody hits you on your right cheek with their right hand, which you have to in that society because you can't use your left. That's your bathroom hand. And they and it has to be a backhanded slap, which is a disempowering, humiliating slap. And what Jesus tells you to do instead of hitting back or staying in that position and just letting him keep hitting you is turn the other way 
So they can't backhand you anymore. They can't use their other hand, which means they either have to stop the violence or they have to front hand hit you, which is that's a glove slap in that in that community. That's how you hit an equal. Either way, that restores your power and your dignity, all without using violence. And, and people don't know this. It's painful. But this is how powerful the teachings of Jesus are when you actually know them. Yeah, well, and I think, I think part of this, too, is in practicing nonviolence, remembering to practice nonviolence towards ourselves, uh, just mm -hmm. as much as we do towards others. Um, our first interviewee was Michelle Yates. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. a while back, she posted something on Facebook, year, it, several years ago, she posted something on Facebook that has just reverberated in my spirit ever since that boundaries are where I can love myself and the other at the same time. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. And so I think that the practice of nonviolence as Jesus would have it and as Jesus demonstrated it is not a practice per se of just total disempowerment and submission. It's a practice of um, power in a different form. And it's a practice of loving other and self at the same time or of nonviolence towards other and self at the same time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Guys, I'm sorry, I have to drop out because I have to go to an appointment this morning. I am sorry to leave early, but because I'm really loving this conversation, but um, <laughs> blessings, I will I will see you again later. Um, and I have some more things. I'll probably just say hi over email, so. <laughs> totally, totally. Love to you, Jess. Love to you guys. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oof. Harold, you always fill me with the feels. Yes. <laughs> I'm appreciating the conversation too. Thank you. Yes, totally. Totally. Um, I'm interested because, especially because Emily gave us the perfect segue about loving yourself and others equally, and that being the definition of boundaries. And really, we have Michelle to thank for that. So hats off to Michelle. But yeah, I'd love to hear, I, yes, it mm -hmm. is, it really is. But I'd love to hear more about your self-care skills, Harold, because I also know you to be champion among that. And even if you don't consider yourself champion, I am naming you the champion. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, Sabbath. Sabbath is such an amazing gift from God. The mm -hmm. fact that it's written into the creation story is hallelujah um amazing mm -hmm. and uh i started taking sabbath in seminary when i was working crazy hours with two part-time jobs and seminary and everything um and so it didn't seem that difficult when i got into um, parish ministry to just keep a day apart and my body has begun to just sink into that over the years. And I, I really rest on Mondays. Mm -hmm. I mean, the churches I've served have allowed me to keep Monday as my Sabbath. Um, haven't had, you know, a particular resistance to it. I just upfront say, look, I'm down on Mondays. I'll come for emergencies, 
if there needs to be a funeral, I'll be there. But um, emergencies better involve flashing lights. Mm. Yeah. Don't don't waste my time on a Monday. Yeah. And um, and that that's provided a foundation for for doing a whole set of other practices. Now, since the pandemic came, I'm taking a day off in addition to Sabbath because. I think for the first 12 years of my ministry, I just worked six days a week and didn't think much of it. Um, and I got tired, but I then I would take a vacation and get reset. But the pandemic changed everything about the way that the rhythms of my life are flowing. And now I'm taking a, a Sabbath and a day off every week. And, mm -hmm. and on my day off, I do things like this. This is fun. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but um I think the the yoga is a huge part of self-care for me, doing that every morning and now every evening. Um, I've only been doing it every evening for five days now, but I'm pretty sure that's going to be um, going on for the duration. Um, yeah. 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 Um, so when we were still in seminary, uh, Emily and I interned at the same church at Fairport, mm -hmm. and uh, that was when I started Sabbath keeping as well. And my very first ordination mentor, I ended up having, I think, four in the 14 years that it took me to get ordained, but uh, wow. <laughs> because they kept retiring on me because that's how long <laughs> it took. But anyway, um, the very first one I had was Ruth Ellen Hoyle. Shout out to Ruth Ellen if you're listening to this somewhere. Um, and she uh, she really drilled it into me that I needed to have uh, I needed to have a Sabbath day. And she, and she was of the of the mood of, you know, even if you're not into the whole self-care thing, God said so. Like it's the rule, so <laughs> do it. And she she's she she's kind of snappy like that and in in, in the best way. Yeah. Um it made the when, top 10. I mean <laughs> yeah. it made the top 10. I love that. It. it did. It made the top that 10. That a whole lot of stuff hits. about nonviolence, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. But then when um so second year of seminary, when Emily and I started that internship at Fairport. Uh, that was when we started having much deeper conversations with Margaret Scott and John McNeil about what Sabbath keeping actually is, yeah. why it's important, and what those boundaries look like within the life of, of serving a congregation. Um, Margaret, I remember, had a, had a conversation with us about the difference between your day off and your Sabbath, that your Sabbath really shouldn't be the day that you're doing your grocery shopping and your laundry. That those aren't the things that feed you, so they shouldn't be the things you're doing that day. Um, I love your definition of, you know, that emergency needs to involve flashing lights. Um, because uh, the, the pull of the servanthood is such that uh, you know, a, a, an email with a few exclamation points in it can feel like a dire emergency. Right. Oh, the emotional drama. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> 
And I, this, this, this line of work absolutely quickly bleeds into a seven day work week. If you're not mm -hmm. extremely careful of it, especially because hello, we work Sundays. Right. And right. unlike, right. unlike what a lot of people in popular culture have thought since, you know, time immemorial, that's not the only day that we work during the week. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but on a job where you literally are required to work weekends and holidays, mm -hmm. knowing when the time off happens is yeah. critically difficult. Um, I think that's one of the most yeah. difficult things about being a pastor is, you know, everybody else gets these three-day weekends. I, I don't get a single three-day weekend throughout the year. I, yeah. You know, when they happen, they happen usually on a Monday or a Friday. If they're on a Monday, it's my Sabbath anyway, and I don't take a special second day off. And then if they're on a Friday, I'm still getting ready for Sunday. <laughs> There's very, very few days when I can just take a day off. <laughs> totally. Totally. Um, and last Sunday, the focus that I made for Christ the King Sunday uh, ended up being Sabbath keeping and holy pauses, because mm. I because I was just thinking of what what that day really means in, in not necessarily theologically, but in the context of the church calendar. It's yeah. the stop of the church year. We we have gotten through the you know the pledge campaign that every church I've ever served does in October and November. Uh, yeah. We've got you know we've gotten past the kickoff of the Sunday school year. We've gotten past the beginning of the secular school year with our kids. For those of us who are parents or raising children, um, but we are about to get into Thanksgiving. We're about to get into Christmas, and Christ the King Sunday is frequently completely overlooked because it happens right before Thanksgiving. So right. pastors preach about Thanksgiving um, or they just scoot right into Advent and they forget about Christ the King. So what I told my parishioners was, look, the turkey will still be there on Thursday. It's in your freezer. It's not going anywhere. You know, those those sales at the department stores are going to still be there. Trust me, I worked in retail for years. They want you to think that that's a one day only sale it ain't it's gonna still be there like your your neediest family members will still need you in five minutes trust me like you know you can take time to just pause yeah. in the middle of everything and sit in this bubble that is occupied 100 percent by the holy and just think about the fact that jesus is in charge which means you're not and nothing else in your life has the power to dominate you. It is all about you and your relationship with Jesus. And that is it. And I had my congregation stop in the middle of worship and meditate for 10 seconds. Mm. And we are so like set up on, you know, every, every second has to be a productive second. So if you're not doing something right now, your brain will start telling you that there's something you need to be doing. If you're not listening to something, then you need to start listening to something. If you're not talking, you need to start. And that's, that's our capitalism that has taught us that our worth is based on productivity. Uh, Walter Brueggemann had a whole book about this called mm -hmm. Sabbath as Resistance, that you're standing up to that entire nonsense culture by just saying, I'm taking a minute for God. God told me to deal with it. You know, all that you just said, 
Oh my gosh. Yes. And I would, I would just, one of the things that Sabbath protects pastors from is like, it's not about, it's not about me. Mm -hmm. This is Jesus church. And I do so much. And I, I so often put myself in a position to attract attention as a pastor so that, um, you know, theoretically, so that I can be passing people's trust in me onto God or using it as a starter so that they can, but it's so easy for my ego and my, um, you know, sort of self-absorbed nature to say, this whole thing's about me. And Sabbath, when I, when I, Sunday night, I say, okay, Jesus, (laughs) you better watch out for the church because I'm not doing a thing tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) reminds me once a mm-hmm. week um mm-hmm. that this whole thing belongs to jesus and it, it's never mm-hmm. has belonged to me and I, yeah. I need that reminder because mm-hmm. it's too easy to slip into um yeah we all do and really this we nobody wants to own up to this in in the ministry perhaps the most but we're really in danger of getting hubristic mm-hmm. and getting egotistical in this line of work mm-hmm. and thinking thinking yeah. nobody nobody can function without us yep. when in, when in reality we're we are we are at at god's will to do whatever it is that god asks us to do or nothing at all if that's what god asks us to do The Wesleyan yeah. prayer is a fantastic protection. That's yes. exactly what you were sort of referring to right there. Oh, yeah, 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 totally, intentionally. <laughs> Badly, <laughs> but intentionally. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Totally important. What I'm wondering on a different, kind of a different note, Harold, you have mm-hmm. such this, such a calming, peaceful presence about you. And I hear you saying that calm is something you really strive for in your practices. What excites you though? Mm. What excites you in ministry or in life or in the presence of the Holy? Yeah, Um, what energizes you? I get really excited writing sermons and preaching them. Mm. That's so cool. (laughs) Saturday night. I was pacing back and forth across because it's so cold out. I didn't really want to go outside. <laughs> I have a small house, so there's not really far. You bounce back and forth when you start to pace. <laughs> but that's what I was doing because the, the ideas were moving and the, um, uh, the, the, the thing was starting to come together. And um, and I, I get excited by um, seeing people come into their fullness um, mm. and find their sense of calling um, and honestly I get excited by Aikido I think every time I step on the mat there there's a, there's an excitement and energy for me um, I know it's not like ministry but <laughs> that's okay <laughs> it's no that's I've okay been, um, mm. it's a place where I find um, tremendous excitement um, mm. 
Yeah, what you just said about fullness of calling, I think without articulating it yourself, you are such an inherently compassionate and empathetic person that seeing other people thrive is a big thing that excites you. Absolutely. I just, I really love to see people mm-hmm. grab hold of this tradition and make it their own and, and then take it in places that I would never have thought to go. Um, mm-hmm. That's the most amazing thing about being a pastor. Yeah. yeah. And I think that the ties in very, very critically with um, right back into nonviolent practice and theology because in 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 a completely nonviolent life what that moves you to is to want the the best and healthiest version of every person violence inherently inhibits people from being able to be their best selves or from being able to be at all yeah yeah Yeah, and and the and the model of building community through through fear and domination is that through imposing fear and domination and domination you can you can limit people you can force them into shapes so they can fit together to build something and the model that jesus is releasing we're not limited we are mm-hmm. um, we're called together into our fullness and we trust that the holy spirit is going to organize us into this body of christ which mm-hmm. is then going to be um, it's going to have its internal consistency and, um, you know, a, a ability to function. Um, and, and that's, um, I, I, that's, that's, that's what gets exciting is, is to mm-hmm. see people not be limited and still, um, be, um, coming together in an organized and healthy way. Semi-organized? Well, and, yeah and, God, <laughs> yeah, and God's organization doesn't have to look anything like our organization. And um, very, very, very frequently, the strongest spiritual lessons that I get are from my children. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so, oh boy, maybe four-ish years ago, I did a series of sermons when I was still serving Avon about toys. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I, one of them was using Mr. Potato Head. Um, yeah. And I, and I talked about how, you know, God puts you together and, you know, so I was talking about creative energy, about how God puts you together in all these different ways. And no matter what it is you look like, you know, this is who you are in the world. And, you know, what face are you showing the world? Is it one that is authentic to you? Or is it one that you kind of Mr. Potato Head put together with like the incognito glasses and the hat and the mustache, or are you really being yourself? And, um, one of the biggest points that I got happened because every week that I did these toy sermons, I would start off and I always had the physical toy with me in the pulpit and I was playing with it in front of everyone. But always I would spend a good three to four hours in the middle of the week before I wrote anything, putting the toy in front of my kids and just seeing what they did with it. 
And the first thing that kids always do with Mr. Potato Head is they figure out that all of these interchangeable pieces can go together in any combination of ways. So like they put, you know, the shoes where the eyes go and they put the glasses on his butt, like, you know, all, all of these different things. And that looks like chaos to grownups. And it looks like they're messing up the toy, but to the kids, that's absolutely delightful. And it's what they wanted. Yeah. So, you know, so this is what the body of Christ could look like. Maybe we walk on our face. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be in some order that we put together for ourselves because yeah. Jesus will make it functional for whatever it's supposed to be. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I had a similar lesson about Play-Doh that uh, <laughs> the first thing that your kids do when you gave them a bunch of different colors of Play-Doh is push them all together. Them all together. Yes. Yeah. Yep. It's chaos, but they love it because they yeah. created something they've never seen before. And this is what God does in the world. Yeah. Yeah. God puts yeah. together these combinations of things that we can't imagine. And once you start mixing these, these facets together, you can never separate them. So it is inherently violent to try to make somebody anything less themselves. You are cutting off a chunk of their Play-Doh. Don't mm. do that. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Playful ministry. It's important stuff. Harold, what do you Play want people to know about God? Ooh, that's a good question. My favorite question. What do you want mm, people fine to know too. about God? I didn't quite hear it. What do you want people to know about God or about the holy, the divine? I, I think the nonviolence of God. Mm. You know, we, we talked a little bit about that at the, at the beginning of um, time together. But I think if if people get that God is inherently nonviolent, it it, it affects our um, understanding of just about everything in the theological spectrum from the concepts of heaven and hell, which are transformed when you think about God from a nonviolent perspective to the, you know, the way that we read all the different various stories. It, for me, nonviolence is key to me being willing to give my life, um, to give up my life for, for this gospel. Yeah. Harold, I'm going to ask you a challenging question, but it's a challenging question that I know that you're up for because I know you so well. And it comes from the last person that we interviewed, again, my friend Jeremiah, who's pagan. And he was talking about the way that he defines God in the world, which is very different from the way that most Christians do. And what yeah. he said was, a God is anything that can kill you. I'm wondering, and it's, it's, it's a completely different theological ethos, but I'm wondering if you in your head find a way to balance that with God's nonviolence, because I, I can, but I want, I'm wondering how that resonates with your soul. I think it depends on if you worship death or you worship life. Mm -hmm. um, for me, God is, is what can make me alive. So many things can kill me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, COVID nearly killed me. Um, uh, you know, rabies nearly killed me this fall. Um, oh. uh, you know, but but God, 
is not limited by death and death is not the um not the final mm. um word and and for me that's what makes our god worthy of worship and why you know i'm dedicated to jesus christ is because when you when you practice nonviolence at that highest level and you take the risk of being killed um mm. you know like when i decided to become a pastor i wanted to test myself and see if i was ready to care mm -hmm. for god's people in the way that um that jesus said like the shepherd is willing to lay down his or her life for for the sheep and i say am i am i am i at a point in my life where i can do that so i signed up for a witness for peace to go to colombia to be with co communities that were facing um violence on a daily basis and to be a, an international witness in situations where you know they were being threatened by death squads and um the colombian military and everything in between and so we just would stand there and 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 witness their lives and and try to help be a human shield but there was a certain level of risk going to a place in colombia that the state department recommends no one travel to because it's it's dangerous and so it wasn't as much risk as they daily encounter but it was a risk and so to meditate on how um, I maintain my own emotional and spiritual self-regulation in the in the presence of uh, elevated deliberately elevated but elevated levels of anxiety um, helped me to answer the question am I going to be ready to lay down my life for the for the people that I'm serving in ministry mm. and and so you know Jesus Jesus took that path to to the the greatest extent and he was embraced by death and and yet he lives and so i think for me um god is what can make us alive and so mm. um and and help us to to live fully without fear of death we have to have mm -hmm. to take death seriously and we mm -hmm. <laughs> going to walk mm -hmm. into it deliberately yeah. um without a mm -hmm. darn good reason but mm -hmm. um but we don't have to fear it and living without the fear of death is um uh, enables amazing creativity and grace in life and yeah so i, I would just have to respectfully disagree mm -hmm. i don't mm -hmm. think that um god is what can kill you um, mm -hmm. and that's okay that's okay, but I, 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 I'm, I, I'm always illuminated and edified by your perspective on all things, and something about um, death as sacrifice and death as mm -hmm. transformational and death begetting life. Yeah. So if 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 God is something that can bring about death, it's death that begets life, which mm -hmm. is which is also unique to a Christian perspective. It's it, it, at least in mine, because that is how I have imagined the theology of the cross, that the world's violence is what put Jesus there, especially the world's prejudices and hate. Mm -hmm 
and it is and it is god that allowed even the darkest of our hatred to mm-hmm. turn into yeah. life for everyone mm-hmm. yeah couldn't have said it better myself well thank you <laughs> beautiful yeah so Harold, I thank you so much for, for giving of yourself for, for this project and for sharing your heart with us in the ways that you, you have in the years that, you've, that we've known you, but especially in this morning. You are well, this all, such a yeah. fun conversation. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes, yes. But you, you are a light for everyone who knows you. Trust me. Cool. Takes one to know one. thank you thank you but go in peace and keep being your absolutely awesome selves grace and peace be with you as well cool shalom Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers is produced by Natalie Bowerman, Emily Hugie, and Jessica Glazer.